But, uh, thank you, choir. Thank you, Richard. I'm, uh, it's great to be part of a church that can do the, the big high orchestra and strings and everybody in their black and regalia, you know, and, and then to sit around here in the living room and just sing carols. Becca had her hot chocolate over there. I just felt like we were right in my living room uh, all again as a kid. That's fantastic. And no, Richard and I didn't plan our outfits other than I knew I wasn't going to wear a suit and he knew that, but uh, we did tend to coordinate there. He is my, my hero, so uh, I'm okay to, to dress like him today. We're going to continue our, our series on what child is this for Advent this morning. We started this series by looking at Simeon, this little known guy who was an, an older dude, we think, in the temple when uh, the Christ child appeared in the temple uh, to be presented uh, after his, his 40th day. And Simeon said, here's the consolation of Israel, the hope of the world. That was the first Sunday of Advent. Then the second Sunday of Advent, we talked about how the shepherds, who were fear and, full of fear and trembling when the angel appeared in the sky, uh, received the good news that, that peace had come to the world. And then on the third Sunday of Advent last week, our choir preached a better sermon than I could ever preach about the joy that Christ brings to the world. Joy to the world, we just sang it. That's my favorite Christmas carol, actually. And then today, the fourth Sunday of Advent, this is the last Sunday of Advent, because next Sunday we light the big candle. My son was over there saying, that's all the candles that are lit. I said, no, not the, the big one yet. That's next week. But today is the, the Sunday of love, as Janice read earlier. And we're going to look at the, the, the issue of the wise men who adored. We're just saying, come let us adore him. They adored and worshipped the king of the world, Jesus Christ, and, and they loved him and worshipped him. And you know, the, the story of the wise men through the years uh, keeps getting added to, and we have these, these legends that surround this story of the wise men. Do you know what a, a legend is? When I first came to Belmont as a freshman, I heard a lot of legends. Uh, one of them was about the dorm that I was living in. I, I moved into to Pembroke Hall. Uh, anybody here live in Pembroke when you were at uh, Belmont? Anybody? I know Ryan Snell and I talked this morning. He was in Maddox. But uh, Pembroke's been around a while, and it's got a reputation uh, for being kind of a rowdy dorm full of young men doing silly things, sometimes not so bright things. And when I asked Ryan this morning, did you live in Pembroke? He said, no, no, thank goodness, no way. That, that place was crazy. <laughs> we, uh, we had a few, um, you know, of our own adventures in, in Pembroke uh, that I won't tell you about this morning. But one of the legends that we heard was that sometime in the, in the 80s that a group of, of young men that were living at Pembroke had decided to have a pool party in Pembroke. And so they, they, they sealed all the drains of the, the, the hall bathroom and they sealed the door, and they, they had some friends over, I believe it was co-ed party, and they, they filled the, all the showers, turned them all on at the same time, and, and flooded the bathroom to where it got three or four feet of water in it. And they had a pool party uh, up in, in the, the bathroom. The problem was that, uh, well, there's a lot of problems, but one of the problems, <laughs> one of the main problems was that it was on the third floor of Pembroke. And, and you architect people know that it's not designed to hold uh, three feet of water in a, in a bathroom like that in an old dorm. And so the, 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 the floor collapsed and uh, all the, the floors below were, were flooded uh, immediately. And who knows if that story tr is true? You know, who knows if they actually made a pool party on the third floor of, of Pembroke? I don't know. It's a legend. 
But the thing with, with legends is they get added on to so many times that we don't really know kind of what's, what's true or what's not. So this morning, I invite us to, to look at Matthew chapter 2. This is the only source that we have about this story. It's not anywhere else in the scripture about the wise men who came to visit Jesus and maybe examine what the Lord has to tell us this morning about the truth of this actual story and not the legends behind it. These stories that are, are legends don't always help us, but the scriptures always help us. The three wise men, right? The story of the three wise men. You know this story, right? The three wise men show up. They're at our nativity scenes. Many of you are smiling because you know that scripture never mentions how many wise men there actually were. You know that, uh, you may know that they w weren't even at the nativity, according to scripture. They weren't even at the, the stable, at the, uh, the inn. That wasn't even part of it. My wife and I were talking about this story this week, and she, she's taught youth Sunday school for years and years. She said, I remember teaching uh, that story to our, our girls in my class, and their minds were just blown when they realized that the wise men weren't at the actual nativity. So let's look together now at the actual story in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Let's start there. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. So Matthew starts out here reminding us that Jesus of Nazareth was actually born 80 miles south, south of Nazareth in Bethlehem. This was important because it fulfilled the prophecies that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. You know, Bethlehem was the city where Ruth and Boaz lived. It was the city before that where Jacob had buried his wife Rachel. And most importantly, it was the city that King David had come from. And we know that the, the prophecies that Janet just read earlier from Psalm 89 and other places in Scripture tell us that the Messiah would come from the line of David from the, the town of David, from the tribe of Judah who lived in this little town called Bethlehem. It was about six miles south of Jerusalem. It was a suburb of Jerusalem. So Bethlehem of Judea, it says here, that's important to remember, because David was the greatest king ever. He brought peace and prosperity. He brought shalom to Israel. And we know that a king even greater than him would come from his line, one from whom the scepter would not depart for all generations. So the text tells us that sometime after his birth, it could be up to two years, Bible scholars tell us, after his birth, wise men show up in Jerusalem from the east. It doesn't tell us how many. Uh, Eastern churches uh, used to always say it was 12 wise men. Eastern Orthodox churches taught that it was 12 wise men, not three that came, but you know that we say three now because they brought three gifts that we are told here. That's why the, the legend of the three began. And the word that's used for, for wise men is actually magi. And the, the word magi refers to these, these like priest kind of figures that came from Persia or what used to be Babylon. It was about 800 miles to the east of Jerusalem. So it would take them about 40 days to travel to Judea. And Magi were, were these people in, in the Eastern empires that were set apart to study wisdom and knowledge. They were, they were set apart to, to do astrology, and really, at their best, they were searching for truth. 
Magi's job was to pursue truth, to understand what is true and right and good in this world. That was the, the job of the Magi. And Magi were also trained in astrology, so of course part of their job was to watch the night skies and to discern what was happening in the heavens. And so these Magi had seen some sort of phenomenon in the sky way to the west over Judea. And they said, ah, we know what this is. We, we believe that this mysterious king of the Jews that we've heard about is, is born, is actually here. See, this is, this is actually amazing. Um, we know from reading Roman historians that right around this time, several different areas in the known world believed that a ruler would come out of Judea from the Jewish people that would be a universal king. Isn't that amazing? The whole world sensed with expectation that God was up to something during this time. We know that several writers like Tacitus in his work, Histories, says there was a firm persuasion that at this very time, the East was to grow powerful and rulers coming from Judea would acquire universal empire. God was up to something and the world knew it. Isn't that incredible? So it wasn't several rulers though. It turned out it was just one ruler. This tiny group of people in Jerusalem, in Judea, the Israelites, the, the weird people that didn't eat pork and they only worshiped one God, that from this little tribe would come a universal ruler who would establish an empire for the world. And the Magi were well-read, they were well-traveled, so of course they knew that this was out there, this prophecy that a ruler would come from Judea. So when they see the star that's doing something over Judea, they say, this is it, boys, pack the camels, let's load up and go. We gotta find him. The ruler of the world is here. Let's go. And they all loaded up their, their caravan and headed west for Jer Jerusalem and Judea. And where did they go? They went to the capital of Judea, Jerusalem. And who is king in Jerusalem at this time? Look at verses 3 and 8, 3 through 8. We know that King Herod was the king. He was this puppet king, really, that was set up by the Roman government to kind of keep an eye on the Jews and make sure they didn't get out of hand in Judea. Verse 3 says, when Herod, the king, heard this, that the wise men had come, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. That's from the prophet Micah, chapter 5. Then Herod summoned uh, all these wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word so that I too may come and worship him. You see, Herod was really a, a pretty effective ruler in Judea. We know that he was a, a great builder. He had all these building campaigns that he, he built these beautiful uh, temples and, and palaces. And, and he really restored the, the Temple of Solomon in Jerusalem and made it even more glorious, ordained with gold and marble and all these, these beautiful things. King Herod accomplished all that, but his, his main flaw was that he was horribly, 
horribly insecure, and insanely suspicious of everyone around him. So much so that he had his own wife uh, killed. He assassinated personally three of his own sons, including his oldest son, Antipater. We know that he was insanely suspicious of anyone who might usurp his throne and his power, so you can imagine his reaction when wise men show up and say, where is this king of the world that we've been waiting for? He does not react kindly to it. So he immediately summons the chief priests and the scribes of Jerusalem to come and tell him about this Messiah. So these priests and scribes are part of this corrupt aristocracy in Jerusalem that basically had been bought off by the Roman government to keep the Jews kind of pacified in that area. They lived the high life on the Roman dollar, but they had neglected the ways of God that they were supposed to lead the people of Judea into in walking in truth and righteousness and holiness as the people of God. So they still knew the basics, though, from the Hebrew Bible. They knew that Micah 5 verse 2 says that from you, O Bethlehem, small among Judah will come a ruler whose origins are from of old. The Messiah would have ancient roots because Jesus Christ was pre-existent from before all time. So he secretly summons the Magi. He's always plotting and doing things in secret. He secretly summons them and he tells them to go and find this new king because he wants to go and worship him. He wants to go and worship this new king too, he says. And then he asks him what time the star appeared. When did this happen? Why does that matter? Because he's trying to figure out how old the baby is now so that he can have all the children in Bethlehem that are under that age killed. pretty twisted, isn't it? This is a cold guy here. And then look at verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way. The wise men went to Bethlehem, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So by this point in the Christmas story, like I said, Jesus is no longer in a stable. It says they found him in a house at this point. They've gotten out of the the smelly barn and are in an actual domicile for humans. And uh, it says here in in verse uh, 10 that when they saw the star, they rejoiced because it had come to rest over Bethlehem, which is only six miles from Jerusalem. So you can imagine after traveling 800 miles, they said, oh, this is it? It's only six miles away? It's here. It's finally come. They rejoiced because they they knew they had arrived at the doorstep of the one who would bring an end to their search for meaning, uh, an end to their search for truth, uh, the one who, who would tie everything together that they had been searching for their whole lives. The ancient and eternal king was in that house that they had arrived at. Imagine if you had spent your whole life in the business of searching for something eternal, for something that that would would bring significance to the world, and and then you finally knew it had come and you had arrived where it was. This is what Jesus still does today, right? Have you seen that bumper sticker that says, wise men still seek him? It's true, isn't it? 
Because people that are wise, that are skilled in the art of godly living, look for that which is ultimate in their lives. They look to to determine what is the basis for my whole life. Wise people do that. And Jesus alone provides that firm foundation even now. You, You know that skepticism is on the rise in our Western culture, but so is faith. People are spiritually seeking, they're hungry for something that can be true, something that can provide meaning. You look at in any bookstore, you see rows and rows of, of, sh- of shelves of books on spirituality, things that can provide an ultimate purpose for people that are lost and lonely and searching in this world. And Jesus today provides that same firm foundation and ultimate meaning for us. So let's finish this passage, verse 11 says, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Of course, God in his sovereignty thwarts Herod's plan to kill the Messiah and he comes to them in a dream. You know God speaks in dreams, don't you? How many of you have ever received some kind of discernment in a dream that you ever had? I have. God speaks to us in all kinds of ways. Pay attention to your dreams. But I think the key to this whole story here is really found in verse 11, in the way that the the wise men react to the question of what child is this when they behold the child. Compare the reaction of the wise men with how Herod answered the question of what child is this. For Herod, the child was a threat. So he reacted with hostility and hatred. He sought to eliminate Jesus. People today in our world still would rather eliminate the authority of Christ on their lives rather than submit to the lordship of Christ, wouldn't they? People are hostile to Christianity because Christ demands their very lives. And people aren't willing to give their lives, therefore they react like Herod did. Or think about this, the reaction of the scribes and the chief priests. Why aren't they begging Herod to let them go with the wise men and find the Messiah? If they spent their whole lives doing this whole Judaism thing and learning about the Messiah, you would think they would be the first ones to be like, finally, the promised Messiah is here. All the promises of God are true. It's it's come. But we don't see anything like that. They're completely indifferent. They've got the high life. They're living on the the high hog of the corrupt Roman government. And they they have it made. So they don't really care to, to mess that up at this point and to go and give it all away to Christ the Lord. I think the key, again, is how the wise men react. What do they do when they behold the child for the first time? It says in the text that they fall on their faces and that they're incapable of anything else besides worship. At this point, they're so overcome with gratitude and with love and adoration that they fall down. And they are struck with worship. All of a sudden, their lives made sense. All up until this point, their lives had been an unfruitful, unsuccessful, unproductive search for meaning. And now, it had ended. That search had concluded in the person of Jesus Christ, the King of the world. The one who would identify himself later as the truth, 
that the wise men were seeking. Worship is the only appropriate response when you're so overcome and overwhelmed with gratitude and awe and love, isn't it? Worship is the only thing that we can do. G.K. Chesterton, the the British theologian and, and writer, said, the worst moment for an atheist, the absolute worst moment for an atheist is when they're overcome by a profound sense of awe and they have no one to thank for it. Can you imagine an atheist when they're so moved by a beautiful sunset and they want to say thank you, but there's no one to thank because they don't believe in anything higher than themselves? It makes sense, doesn't it? These these wise men come face to face with God in the flesh and they know who to give their thanks to, who to give their worship to. It's it's to the Christ child, the Lord of the the world. You know, we, we do this. We worship whenever we're overcome with gratitude, whenever something strikes us as profound with significance and meaning. We worship when we, when we praise the one who gives us life and sustain us, whatever that may be in our lives. We worship when, whenever we adore and love whatever it is that, that gives significance and purpose to our existence in this world. And the reality is that we all adore something. We all love something as ultimate in our lives. I heard a wise person say, uh, Fran Shaka in Birmingham, he said, we chase what we love and we resemble what we chase. It's true, isn't it? You, 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 you pursue whatever it is that you ultimately love in your life and you resemble that thing that you're chasing after. If it's God, then you're a godly person. If it's money, then maybe you're a wealthy person. If it's success, then maybe you're a successful person, but whatever it is that you truly love as ultimate is what you pursue in your life, and it's what you resemble as well. Well, for the wise men, they worshiped, and they loved, and they adored. They pursued Christ, the universal Lord and King. They laid down their most precious gifts before him gladly, gold, the gift of kings, the king of all metals for the king of kings. Frankincense, that was a perfume that was used in, in priestly rituals in the temple. It was the gift for priests. And we know that Jesus would become our great high priest who made a sacrifice once and for all, atoning for the sins of the world. And then myrrh, this was a gift for someone who would die. Myrrh was a spice that was used in embalming dead bodies because Jesus was born to die. All these gifts were appropriate and highly uh, uh, powerful symbols of who Jesus was to be, the King of kings, the priest of priests, and one who was born to die for our sins. And they gave these gifts gladly. You know, the, the thing about gift giving and worship is that it's not meant to be a burden. It's meant to be a blessing for the giver. The one who worships is blessed. The one who gives is blessed. We know that Jesus Christ said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Let's remember that during a consumer-driven season like Christmas in America. No gift was too great to offer this king because the wise men knew he was worthy to receive all of those gifts and much, much more, and they were pleased to give them. The thing about gift giving and and, and worship is that it's only pleasant to the giver if you truly love the thing you're giving to, right? I mean, you parents know the joy of seeing your kids open their presents on, on, you know, Christmas morning. It's, It's one of the greatest feelings in the world to see, you know, Jude jumping up and down and screaming, you know, and we say, yes, we did good, you know, on the gift because we love him. 
And we want, we want them to see him happy. We want to see May and Isaiah eventually be pleased at what we give them because it brings us joy. When you give worship to God fully and he receives it, he is pleased and you are blessed from that because you love him. At least that's the way it's designed to work. It's our default setting to worship whatever it is that we love and to chase after it. If, if a certain sports team is, is the, your ultimate love, then your hopes and fears, what we just saying, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in Christ. Well, if, if you know, some football team is your ultimate love, then your hopes and fears will rise and fall depending on the success of that team. And I'm telling you people that one day everything will let you down. Even if you're an Alabama fan, they will lose. Maybe years from now, okay? But they will lose and you will be disappointed. I promise it will happen. If your job is what you love more than anything, when you lose it, you will be crushed. If your boyfriend or girlfriend is your everything, teenagers, then if it's your identity, then when you lose that thing, you will be devastated. Everything will let you down. Your spouse, your own children will let you down. I can vouch for that one. Everything will let you down except Jesus Christ. Only Jesus Christ is therefore worthy to be Lord of all. That's why the invitation this morning is to come and adore Him. Oh, come, let us adore Christ. Let us fall down on our faces like the wise men and be overcome with gratitude that Jesus Christ would die for us, that He would take our place on the cross because He loves us that much. I invite you all to, to just like the Magi did, come and worship the Savior of the world with joy and to give Him the gift of yourself freely today and with joy. Say, Jesus, this is all yours. I give it all to you. Everything I have, I surrender it to you. You know, Jesus said, whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 10, 39. It's true. You know, the, the number one, do you know the number one age of missionaries that are going to the field right now? the mission field, full-time missions, they're in their 60s. Why is that? Why is it not 20-somethings? Because 20-somethings think, I got to find my life. I got to go to college and get a job and all this stuff. And 60-somethings are saying now, I, I, I caught the car. I'm like the dog chasing the car. It's like the American dream. You know, I, I caught it and it's not what I thought it was. You imagine a dog catching a car? The chase is fun, but what, what happens if he actually catches the car? <laughs> not so fun then. 60-somethings are figuring out, I, I, it's not what I thought it was. I attained the American dream. It's not, it's not what I thought. And now they're going to the mission field. They're giving their whole lives away for the sake of Christ because now they're finding their lives. Isn't that incredible? Don't wait, young people. <laughs> Don't wait till you're 60 to figure that out. Many of you know the story of Jim Elliott in the 50s. He and, and four of his friends were evangelizing the Quechua Indians in Ecuador and they were killed by the, the Indians that they were trying to evangelize. Ten warriors surprised them. One of the guys they had been reaching out to lied and told them that, that the, the American men were hostile. And so they came and, and killed him. And you know, his wife, Elizabeth Elliot, went back and lived there for seven more years and saw many of those Indians come to Christ, including the ones who killed her husband. And you know, he had written in his journal in 1949, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Wise men give <laughs> what they cannot keep. 
gifts that they bring in order to gain that which they cannot lose. When you give yourself fully to Jesus Christ, when you give all that you are, all your hopes and dreams to him, you gain eternity. You gain hope and peace and joy and love in the fullest. You gain a sense of purpose and identity and a mission to join in on in your life. You gain all these things in overflowing abundance. So I would say this is a wise thing to do, to lay down all of your gifts at the feet of Jesus this morning.